This episode is brought to you by our friends at Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS exists to provide ministerial training in the context of a confessional local church. They are, among other things, confessional, Baptist, affordable, and accessible. They are also now fully accredited by the Association of Reformed Theological Seminaries. You can learn more about them at their website, which is cbtseminary.org. Again, that is cbtseminary.org. The Covenant Podcast exists to discuss doctrine, theology, and the biblical worldview from a covenantal Baptist perspective. We pray that this resource will be edifying to you and glorifying to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Covenant Podcast. Uh, Today, I'm here with uh, my co-host, Jimmy Johnson, and we're privileged to have the opportunity to speak with Dustin Binge, and the topic that we're going to be addressing is the American Puritan. So welcome to the podcast, Dustin. Thank you so much, Austin. Such an honor and privilege to be back with you. Dustin, I want to start off by asking a a pretty straightforward question. Um, we're talking about your newest book about the American Puritans. So who were the Puritans? Well, that's that's an interesting question, and we could probably take up the entirety of the rest of the podcast and perhaps a whole year of podcasts uh, talking about uh, the Puritans and exactly who they were. Uh, But just ever so briefly, just to give a a bit of history about the Puritans, we have to go back to the 16th century, basically, uh, 1500s, England. Um, Elizabeth I ascends to the throne. When she ascends to the throne, she begins to reverse much of her sister Mary's, known as Bloody Mary, her Catholic initiatives. So Mary comes to the throne. Um, she begins to enact Catholic initiatives throughout the kingdom and begins to enact severe persecution on those uh, followers of the Reformation, Protestant followers, uh, etc. So uh, she dies. Elizabeth I ascends to the throne, begins to reverse all of that. And really out of that desire comes groups of people who wanted the freedom, who desired the freedom to worship freely outside that which was dictated by the state. So the term Puritan was initially used as a derogatory term in the 1560s. So when we refer to these men and women as Puritans, they would not like that at all uh, because it was a derogatory term. And it really came to refer to a large contingent of Protestants who were seeking to purify and, if you will, further reform the Church of England. They felt like the Church of England had become too ingrained or intertwined with the government itself. And they saw those two entities as separate, necessary entities. Now, within that reformed movement of Puritanism, there were several different groups. So one group only desired mild reforms. Uh, Another group wanted to only reform the organizational structure of the church, while 
another group completely opposed the Church of England um, and really fully rejected most of the practices of the state-run church. But there was also a fourth group within Puritanism that sought complete separation from the Church of England. And so it's really from these two latter groups, those who desired inner reform within the Church of England, as well as those who sought complete separation from the church itself, really within these two groups, we find the men and women that we're most interested in that we are calling the American Puritans. Now, Puritanism as a movement began to decline around the 17th and 18th centuries as other groups and denominations began to emerge from these original Puritans, um, such groups as Baptists and Anglicans and Presbyterians, etc. Uh, th there's really no agreement as to when Puritanism ended. Some suggest it was around 1740, so about 200 years or so uh, individuals were called Puritans, but by 1740, by that time, it began to really splinter into different denominational ideas. And some suggest by this time, it just doesn't make sense to call uh, people Puritans anymore. Uh, so that's really what a Puritan is. Uh, I, I kind of hope that answers the question. Well, thank you for that. Um, you mentioned American Puritans. You and Nate Pickowitz have recently written a book on the American Puritans. And in the introduction to the book, you ask the question, who are the American Puritans? So can you uh, respond to this question for our audience? Uh, well, of course, uh, Nate uh, Pickowitz and I are uh, dear friends. We've been dear friends for um, several years now. Um, it extends back to uh, when I was looking at uh, possibly pastoring a church in New England, uh, the Lord kind of closed that door. But yet in that uh, time period, Nate and I became very dear friends. And Nate has always had an interest in uh, New England Puritanism and the history of New Hampshire and the surrounding states of where he currently lives and ministers and pastors. And so as we just continue to mutually discuss these things, we, I think, just one day said, what about writing a book together and exploring some of these figures that um, we have uh, talked about and thought about uh, for so long? And so both of us are immensely thankful uh, for the work that has been done over the past 50 to 75 years to explore the Puritan movement, republish Puritan books. Um, the Banner of Truth has been really the catalyst in bringing out a lot of the revised Puritan works, and we're just so thankful for those movements. However, we believe that really the first 100 years of American church history, specifically with regards to New England Puritanism, is largely overlooked. Um, we read about it in academic textbooks, but very few people are telling the human stories of these people. Uh, they're largely forgotten. 
Um, we initially advertised or wanted to call the book The Forgotten Puritans at the very beginning because it just made sense. This group of men and women have completely gone out of um, church history uh, in regard to American religious history. And so therefore, our book is a popular level introduction to these key figures of American Puritanism. It hopes, we hope, both of us hope that it will reintroduce our audience to the faith and trials of these early settlers. Um, the book outlines, and we'll get into this in just a few moments perhaps, but the book really out outlines and examines nine key figures. So it's nine biographical stories that we're most interested in. Uh, William Bradford, John Winthrop, John Cotton, Thomas Hooker, Thomas Shepard, Anne Bradstreet, John Eliot, Samuel Willard, and Cotton Mather. Uh, these men and women are, as I've already said, unknown. And through this work, we want to remedy uh, that. Uh, they're men and women of amazing faith, amazing courage and persistence. Um, they really have an admirable tenacity to them uh, to keep to their purpose. And what was their purpose? Well, they were not out to make money or uh, make a name for themselves. Their clear purpose was to establish a city upon a hill, as John Winthrop said, uh, a beacon of gospel light for the rest of the world. Uh, now, they're not perfect, and they had many flaws, and they were sinners just like we are they had specific sins like we have specific sins in our time period and culture and context. But really underneath it all, they speak to us about the freedom of worship, uh, tenacity and adversity, uh, Christianity in the public square, evangelizing the lost, missionary efforts in the face of possible death. They speak to us about faith in Christ. And so this book is about a group of men and women who have been forgotten, but that need to come back to the forefront of our understanding of American religious history. Hmm. Well, uh, you mentioned the nine biographies uh, that you uh, have written about and concerning the American Puritans. Uh, I haven't got an opportunity to get the book yet. I'm interested. Which ones did you write about? Well, um, it, it doesn't really say in the book who we wrote about. Um, we kind of buried that. Perhaps it was either in the introduction or the conclusion. Um, but perhaps um, uh, one would be able to find it. I wrote about John Winthrop, uh, John Eliot, Anne Bradstreet, and Thomas Hooker. It was very important to us that we include a, a woman, a lady as well. Uh, just to tell her story, and Anne Bradstreet seemed like a, a very good person to include. So John Winthrop, uh, John Elliott, Anne Bradstreet, and Thomas Hooker. Uh, by the way, guys, I at the beginning of this project, I had not done a lot of reading um, on these four figures. And so um, as you read the book and you begin to uh, learn about these uh, men and women for the very first time. That was me uh, when I went back to uh, research these men and women. I did not know much about them, but became uh, extremely acquainted with them, and they became very dear friends over the months 
that I did research for this book, and I hope to do more work on them in the future. Uh, you mentioned uh, the ones that you were able to write about. Uh, can you give us a brief podcast size biography, whatever amount of time you want to speak to uh, these Puritans <laughs> that you mentioned? Yeah, well, again, dear friends that I've lived with through research over several months, and you've asked a preacher and a historian to give a bite size of biography. Uh, so we'll we'll just start and kind of see how this goes. Um, John Winthrop, um, his dates, uh, I like to give dates of people, uh, just to put them in some sort of a context. But John Winthrop, born in 1588, died in 1649. Um, he was a lawyer, uh, one of the leading figures in establishing the Massachusetts Bay Colony, really the second major colonial settlement behind Plymouth uh, that was settled by um, the uh, residents of the Mayflower. Perhaps you know that story. Uh, Winthrop sailed to the New World, uh, the first of really a large wave of English immigrants in 1630. Uh, he served as governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony for 12 years. Uh, in July 1645, Winthrop uh, stood before the Massachusetts General Court and delivered a beautiful, eloquent speech on the subject of liberty. Uh, I really think that this captures the whole essence of his mindset um, and his desire for the new world. Um, during his time as governor, he sought to promote and spread his zeal for uh, civil liberty. Uh, he desired to see a land that was freely governed by selfless people for the good of promoting justice and the general welfare. And we see some of this language, don't we, uh, appear in our Constitution and Declaration of Independence um, uh, many, many years uh, later. But what Winthrop desired was to see, as he said, a city set on a hill. Now, would he see this achieved in his lifetime? Uh, probably not at all to the degree that he desired, but nonetheless, his dream really lives on uh, in the hearts and of all the men and women now um, who desire the cause of, of liberty. So, so that's John Winthrop. John Eliot, who ended up being my favorite um, character out of my study uh, that I hope to do a possibly a larger biographical account uh, much later, uh, many years down the road. Um, but his dates are 1604 to 1690. Um, Eliot was a colonial pastor who desired an ardent call uh, to go to his neighbors and share the gospel of Christ. Eliot was not a great statesman. Uh, he was not a, a huge towering intellectual, even though after my study, I began to recognize just what an intellectual he really was. He, he was a very simple man, um, simple in being a faithful pastor to a church in Roxbury, Massachusetts for 40 years. Um, he was simple in his endeavors to establish what he called a Christian society among the Native Americans. And so he was a pastor, but yet also a missionary. We think of men like Jonathan Edwards and David Brainerd and later William Carey as really being the fathers of the modern missions movement. But that's not true. John Eliot 
uh, we could say would could be the father of the modern missions movement. David Brainerd was reading Eliot, and he was um, um, greatly undergirded by Eliot's work among the Native Americans. In fact, it was Eliot who uh, took the whole Bible and translated both Old and New Testaments into the Algonquin language, the language of the Native Americans, uh, translating that um, for the propagation of the gospel among the Native Americans and to share the gospel with them. Uh, I'm calling him uh, the American William Tyndale um, because he saw that the only way that the Indians could know the gospel was to have the Bible in their own language. And so he created an alphabet of Algonquin, uh, an alphabet that uh, had never been done for a language for almost a thousand years before Eliot comes on the scene. He wrote Indian grammar books in order to do this translation work. Um, so it's just unbelievable uh, what he actually did. But he called himself in the end just a shrub in the wilderness. He's calling himself a, a bush uh, in the wilderness. It's just mind-blowing to think of the humility uh, of these men, yet they're towering figures of pastoral leadership and missionary efforts. I told you I could go on forever uh, really about these guys. So Anne Bradstreet, um, one of the, the only women that we explore in this context, but a beautiful story a story of grief, but yet a story of beauty. Uh, most people would know Anne Bradstreet as being a, a great poet. Uh, her dates are 1612 to 1672. Uh, her husband's name was Simon. Um, this very young couple, Simon and Anne Bradstreet, sailed from England aboard a ship called the Arabella in 1630. Uh, really arriving in the new world with little intention of making any sort of indelible mark. Uh, Simon was a faithful husband. He was a, a doting father. He left his uh, prominent mark on the government in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, but Anne left her legacy from her pen. Um, in her copious poems, that she composes about life and God. And the, uh, the Bradstreets really remain for us and are a portrait for us, a reminder to us that life in the new wilderness was very difficult and it was very costly. Uh, in other words, that serving God comes with the abandonment of all the comforts of this life with a real keen eye fixed on the next. In other words, Anne, through her poem, she explores death. She explores the loss of children, uh, the loss of in-laws, uh, the loss of, of companionship, of friends that she left in England when she sailed to the new world, the hardships on the new frontier, dangers of, of Native American attacks, um, sleeplessness, depression. I mean, she's exploring all of these really intense subjects. And I think you'll find her chapter perhaps quite fascinating. Uh, Thomas Hooker is the last individual that I looked at, uh, 1586 to 1647. 
Hooker is sometimes called the father of Connecticut uh, since he founded the colony of Connecticut. Uh, he's a pastor in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Of course, they're naming all of these towns after towns that they're aware of in England. Um, but he should be remembered for more than statecraft, if you will, or the formation of government. He should be remembered for his ardent desire to bring religious freedom to his congregants in a new world. Uh, he should be remembered for more than his assistance in founding the colony of Connecticut. But he was a pastor. He was a preacher. He, he should be remembered for the founding of his own pulpit and the proclamation of the unsearchable riches of divine grace. Uh, above all else, Hooker was a preacher saved and called by God to assist uh, in bringing men and women to salvation and the assurance of faith. Hooker remained undistracted from this task for 61 years. Now, imagine that, uh, looking back on your ministry 61 years later, um, and the faithfulness and ardent desire that you have to spread the gospel news among the people of the world. And so, in short, that's, I guess, my podcast size of of these uh, men and women, John Winthrop, um, John Elliott, Ann Bradstreet, Thomas Hooker, uh, keen men and women who all kind of sail over in this second immigration or wave of people uh, from uh, England to the New World. Uh, it's fascinating stories. And I hope uh, that you, as well as your readers, will enjoy reading these biographies as much as I enjoyed writing them. Hmm. Yeah, you did a very good job on your bite-sized biographical sketches, so thank you for that. Um, the Amazon description of your book mentions that it corrects many of the myths and half-truths about the Puritans. Can you kind of speak to this? What are some of those myths, and what are what are some of your responses to them, or how does it correct them? Well, I'm not... Yeah, I'm not sure who wrote that. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, those who... Uh, find keen ways to describe books. Um, but I think what is meant here is just the manner in which these men and women have been portrayed through the years. Uh, number one, they've been portrayed in such a way that they have been forgotten. And so there has to be something to the way that they're portrayed that causes them to be forgotten or at least dismissed. Uh, by a large contingency of the church here in the United States that would cause us to almost say, uh, these men and women are just not worth our time. They're not worth our effort, and they're not worth our scholarship. Just about all we remember about this time period is the destruction of the Native Americans. So this this idea of colonization coming in destroying the beautiful, pristine land of the New World, destroying the beautiful, pristine nature of the Native American villages and um, et cetera, really bringing industrialization into this pristine environment. So that's one idea that we have. Um, I think it's corrected. Much of that is corrected by John Eliot by just seeing, as I've already said, the ardent desire within him 
to spread the gospel among the Native Americans. And so in a way we could say, and I'm not going to get into all of the nuances of this, but in a way we could say that God, by his providence, allowed this group of men and women to bring the gospel to the Native Americans. And so God is expanding his kingdom through these men and women. Now, a lot of scholars have problems with that, and I could get into all of that, but your, your readers or your listeners are probably not interested in that. Um, but I, I do see ways in which that this is not a destruction of pristine wilderness, but this is God bringing the name of Christ to the new world and saving masses of people during this period. Uh, we see that in the story of John Eliot, for instance. Uh, another idea about this time is we think about them only burning witches, right? So uh, the Mathers and others are going from house to house and they're looking uh, for witchcraft, they're looking for devil craft, they're looking for anybody that they can haul out and put on a stake and burn or try and all we know is about the Salem witch trials. Um, Nathaniel Hawthorne, of course, unfortunately, has helped us during this period really to put in the American psyche this idea of the scarlet letter and how the Puritans were these austere, hateful people that just didn't want you to have any fun. They wanted to ruin life. They wanted to bring a sour disposition to everything that was coming and going. That's what we try to just scrape away. Uh, the Puritans are not that at all. Um, we see in these nine biographies a real humanity about them, a, a deep abiding spirituality of godliness and Christ-likeness with the desire to honor and glorify God in all they do. And so uh, on the other hand, you have hagiography that's going on of, about this time period. So, so you just have a lot of really misreading uh, the context of this time. And it's our desire to not introduce you to a lot of the controversy surrounding this time period, but to introduce you to a human story to get to know these men and women and who they are. Uh, before we move on to the next question, it might be helpful to mention to our listeners what hagiography is. Yeah, so um, that's just taking history and really shaping it in a manner uh, that makes it look better or makes it look worse than it actually is. Um, true historians of what Nate and I desire to do, we're not trying to hide the sins of these men and women. We're not trying to scrape away uh, the dark periods of this history. We're trying to shine light on an era that has been forgotten. If I was ha doing hagiography, that just means I'm coming into the story and I'm trying to make them look better than they were. I'm trying to make their sins look less severe than they were. Or perhaps I'm coming alongside and I'm trying to emphasize their sins in such a way and bring about this understanding that they should just be dismissed altogether. That's the current movement, a lot of revisionist history going on. In other words, some of these men own slaves, and so therefore everything that they say should be dismissed outright. 
again, we're not looking into the social context of a lot of this history, uh, but we don't ignore it. Uh, we're bringing these things up, but we're not dealing with it in a theological way because that's the purpose of this book is more biographical. Uh, so moving this conversation on, how should American Puritan history shape the way we think of American history altogether? Well, you know, if, if anything, it should simply demonstrate the importance of religious freedom and the desire of these early Puritans to live in a world where people were free to worship and and free to serve as their conscience that is a conscience informed by scripture instructed them to do so. And so I think it should highlight the fact that these men and women desired to found again, a city set on a hill. Um, I don't think that they were looking for a um, ardent Christian society. I, I think they saw divisions between the two, but I think they, they did desire to see a government uh, set up that recognized God, that recognized scripture as its basis. Now, of course, this was not achieved perfectly. Um, it was not achieved even to the manner in which they desired it to be achieved. But yet that was some of their desire. Um, they desired to bring the gospel to these people. And so we need to understand this period as a period that desperately needs some scholarship, desperately needs some understanding but yet again has been largely forgotten. After someone reads your book, if they wanted to dig in deeper on the subject or on these people, where would you guide them? Where would you point them? Well, that's a good question. I would say, first of all, some individuals are going to have a problem just because we've called it the American Puritans. Uh, because they say that these men and women were not Americans, they were English, and so they were part of that English Puritan contingency like John Owen and Bunyan and Richard Baxter and all of the rest. Um, but we call them the American Puritans because they had a, a very early idea, though in seed form that would be buried and grow to fruition much later, but the American idea was still alive in their hearts and minds during this period. So some of the American Puritan writings, so Cotton Mather and, and others, um, some of those are going to be available. Uh, the Mather Project, the Mather Project, however you want to pronounce his last name, um, th that is being done to produce much of his exitant works. Um, to bring out much of his writings, which many of us could benefit from on a, a very high level. Um, but not a lot of work has been done in this, in this period of American history. And so we're hoping this book to be really the catalyst that will bring forward uh, some books and some interest. Maybe you guys want to write something uh, on this period or it would spark some interest to you. Uh, this year, thankfully, is the 400th anniversary of the landing of the Mayflower in Plymouth, um, and so books will be coming out about this period. Um, there's a book that Nate is contributing a chapter to that I know of uh, going to be about this period, uh, going to be about these pilgrims that came. And so I would just say if you if you want introduced to this period, read the Puritans themselves. Look at Reformation Heritage books. 
who not only published our book, but also publishes masses of Puritan reprints and other really great works by the Puritans. Joel Beakey has done masses of work on the Puritan period, uh, a Puritan theology by him and Martin Jones. I would encourage listeners to look that up uh, and get that um, as a companion to that book. They also have a book called Read the Puritans, uh, which is um, uh, almost a bibliography of great Puritan writings that, that listeners can look into. J.I. Packer has done, uh, again, masses of work in this area. Banner of Truth, of course, was the first catalyst to really bring some of these Puritan works uh, to the forefront. So they have published enormous quantities of Puritan literature. Uh, you can look on their website and see all kinds of great resources. Uh, so uh, 50 years ago, 75 years ago, these resources were not available. Uh, guys, we're living in a tremendous time period uh, when these resources have been made available to us that we should avail ourselves of. Well, we have uh, enjoyed this conversation, uh, Dustin, and Jimmy and I want to congratulate you on your new position as the provost of Union School of Theology. Uh, but the question is, how do you think your study of the American Puritans will help you in this new leadership role? Well, thank you, uh, guys, for having me on the podcast again. It's great to speak with you again about this subject that's very dear to my heart. Uh, thank you as well for the uh, congratulations on uh, my current appointment as Provost of Union School of Theology in Wales. My wife and I are making the reverse trip. And so it's interesting because I've written about these men and women uh, immigrating from England to the United States. Well, I'm about to immigrate the other way, uh, back to England. And so I'm looking forward to, to visiting some of the hometowns and, and places where these men and women um, grew up and, and ministered and pastored and all of the rest. Um, uh, we are supposed to move on June the 1st um, here in just a few weeks. However, that seems to be increasingly optimistic as we are still in lockdown from the current pandemic situation. Uh, so we'll see how that goes. But the Puritans help and, and aid me spiritually by consistently pointing me to Christ. Uh, the Puritans aid me probably more spiritually than any other way. They're constantly um, reminding me of the importance of Christ, the beauty of Christ, the glory of God, the necessity of Scripture, the centrality of Scripture, the necessity of keeping uh, daily spiritual disciplines and an ardent desire to follow Christ and be devoted to his kingdom and his purposes. Um, they consistently remind me of the necessity of church ministry and expository preaching and all of the rest of it. And so I'm not really sure how that they will help me in my new leadership role. Um, if I can say anything, perhaps one thing, uh, it would be the example of their undying devotion that they had to Christ, but also their undying devotion that they had just simply to serve people. Um, that's what I've learned from these men and women. They are committed to serving others, and that's what I desire uh, to do in my new role. If, if I can die in England when I'm 100 years old, perhaps, and say 
that I've been but a shrub in the wilderness, uh, but yet uh, God has advanced his kingdom through me, uh, then I'll know that um, I've fulfilled the calling that he's placed upon my heart. And uh, the Puritans have been of great influence uh, to me uh, and in me, pointing me to Christ consistently. We have been talking with Dustin Binge about the American Puritans, which is the subject of his latest book that he co-wrote with Nate Pickowitz. So go check that book out. And Dustin, thank you for coming on the Covenant Podcast. Well, thank you again so much, guys. It's been a privilege to be with you. Listeners of the podcast, if you desire additional content, check out our extension ministry of the Covenant podcast, Covenant Confessions, at covenantconfessions.com. Covenant Confessions is a blog ministry, and the contributors desire to equip God's people with content that informs and encourages from a 1689 Baptist perspective. Check it out.